All right, everyone, we're going to come back together. Finish up that last sentence there. All right, so I want to start with a bit of scripture that if you've been around in church, if you've been to church before, you've likely heard in some sort of context. Uh, but today I want to focus on a different part of the story. So follow me along. This is out of 1 Kings 19. So we're going old school. Uh, it says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the earth, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Sometimes that's translated to a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. I'm going really fast because this part makes no sense without context. Uh, Torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Now, what I want to focus on this morning is that line, go back the way you came. Because I think it's fascinating that in church we can talk about this still small voice that makes it on bumper stickers. I mean, on the evangelical world, that makes it on journals, t-shirts, whatever you want. If you've got to market it, there it is. But what's that still small voice saying? Like, that's what's fascinating to me. The still small voice, when it reveals itself after all those dramatic events, simply tells Elijah, one, why are you here? Which is a really interesting question. And then two, the follow-up is, go back the way you came. And as I've been walking this journey of recovery, and as I've been walking with other people through this journey of recovery, that is the key theme. It's all in the return. It's all in the way that we came, like retracing our steps to find out how we got right here. And more than that, it's just about that pull back. Sharon Salzberg is one of my favorite meditation teachers. Uh, she's also just like the, probably the most world-renowned meditation teacher. Uh, she often focuses on the breath, and she uses that as an anchor in her meditation exercises. And her whole thing is, for years and years and years, she said she was trying to become the best meditator that she could possibly be, which is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> and the reason being is, she said, like, I would just sit down, and I would start breathing, and I would try and breathe the best I could, which is such a weird goal to have. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I would get distracted, or a pop-up would come up, or the doorbell would go off, or my phone would go off, and I would feel like I had been a bad meditator. But she said she began to realize, after years and years of practice, that it wasn't about coming to the space and being the best performer that you could be in it. It was actually about when that doorbell goes off, when that phone goes off, when that distraction happens. The best meditator has the ability to pick up and start where they began has the ability to go back. And actually, they've measured this. All of the psychological benefit, all of that zen-like peace that you get when you meditate, all of that just comes from the return. It does not come from when we're doing it perfectly. So when we're in that like floating on one finger kind of a zen-like state and everything is going well, that's not necessarily where our body and our brain and our heart are getting the most benefit. Our heart gets our, the most benefit when we go out somewhere and then we have to journey back. I don't know what that is, but it shows up all over the place in life. It shows up all over the place in scripture. It's in this, go back the way you came, but it's also in the prodigal son. It's also in the lost sheep. It's everywhere. It's this idea of something goes away, something comes back, and when it comes back, there's this theme of rejoicing that happens. 
Nowhere in the Bible and scripture in our shared story is there something we rejoice and celebrate more than a homecoming or like a return, right? I remember uh, I grew up moving all over the place. My dad was a missionary, and so I was born in Texas, uh, and then we moved to South Carolina, then we moved to Sacramento, then we moved to Amsterdam, then we moved to New York, then we moved to New Jersey, then we moved to San Francisco, and that was all before I turned 14. Um, And then I went to five different high schools because I was in like a performance arts sort of a thing, and my grades were absolutely terrible. So my parents kept like, just go to this one, this one, this one, maybe it'll fix it, maybe it'll fix it. And so perpetually, my entire life, I was just a new kid. Right? I was just trying to figure out how to fit in and where do I fit in and how long is this one going to last before I'm uprooted and taken to the next one. And life has just been like that. When I was 5 to 10, we lived the longest stretch anywhere, and that was in Sacramento, California. So most of my memories growing up are in Sacramento, California, even though I lived in these sort of exotic, glorious places. I mostly remember Sacramento. So there you go. Um, but when I was about 10, my dad walked into my room, and my brother and I were sharing, Uh, And he sat us down, and he announced that we were going to be moving again. Uh, And this time, we're not just moving like a small move. We're actually going to move to a different country. And I was 10 years old. I didn't even know what a different country was. (laughs) I was like, what are you talking about? We're moving to a different country. But he said, it's very, very far away. It's thousands of miles away. And it's a place called Amsterdam. And I thought he said Hamsterdam, which I was very excited about, because I thought maybe this whole city is filled with hamsters. My 10-year-old little gleeful self rejoiced. (laughs) Not the case. Filled with other things for certain, but not hamsters. Uh, I moved to Amsterdam, but before I did that, I had this friend, Jackson, um, my best friend in the whole, whole world, from like age five to age 10. Jackson and I did everything together. Jackson was involved in the church that I was involved in. Uh, we were creepy, evangelically homeschooled back then, so we were just all really, really close. We were the only two boys in that homeschooling group, and so we just became super, 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 super close. And what's weird is when you tell a kid that you're moving, there's this excitement because they're like, oh, I get a new room, I get whatever that might be, all that kind of stuff. But then it begins to settle. Like, oh, no, I'm going to have to leave Jackson. And that was the biggest thought in my brain. Like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm fine with leaving everything else, but that is my best friend. That's like my brother, and I'm going to have to leave him. It's so weird that even for my little 10-year-old self right now, I'm getting kind of (laughs) teary-eyed. i got to leave Jackson, right? And so Jackson and I have our final goodbye. Our parents like set up this little play date for us and we're hanging out and at the end, we both know what's coming. They're like, you're gonna have to say goodbye. And in that moment, we just start bawling, crying and we hold on to each other and we just grip. And I remember Jackson saying, if we hold on so tight, they won't be able to take you away from me. <laughs> and, and literally, it was like the jaws of life. Our parents were like pulling us apart and we're like crying and we're moving. And I just remember thinking, in my tiny little self, in the way that I understood the world, in the way that I could see the world, in the framework that I had, everything was ending. It really felt like a death. Even though it wasn't, I was just moving. This was pre-internet. This was pre-anything. It would have taken like $45 to call him for like 15 minutes on a missionary's budget. That's not happening, (laughs) right? So this really was a very definitive goodbye. And so we hugged and we cried. We got pulled apart, and that was that. Now, fast forward literally 25 years later, uh, I'm in my office on 7th and Wilshire in Santa Monica, and I get a text from my dad, and it says, hey, I have someone that's trying to get a hold of you. Uh, Do you mind if I give them your number? And I was like, that's a really vague text. I'm not sure you're talking about. Who is it? (laughs) And they're like, actually, it's Jackson Herndon. And I was like, Jackson? Like, of course. Like, uh, yeah, give him my number. There you go. And then immediately, no lie, right after that, I get another buzz on my phone. And I look at it, and it's a 916 code, which is a Sacramento area code. So he didn't make it far. Uh, But there it is. (laughs) 
he's texted me, uh, and he's like, hey, man, I just moved to Los Angeles. Are you still in L.A.? Your parents said that you were. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, I am. Where are you in L.A.? Because that could mean anything. My brother lives in Los Feliz, and he might as well live in Santa Barbara. I'm on the west side. There's no, anyway. Uh, so he tells me I'm in Santa Monica. And I went, what? And then he went, yeah, I'm on 4th in Montana. And if you know anything about Santa Monica, like, they're numbered streets up from the beach, right? So it's like 4, 5, 6, 7. I'm on 7th, and he's on 4th. And I sent him a screenshot of a map where it's like our two pins are like this close together. And he sends a text back and he says, do you want to grab coffee? And I said, yes. And I canceled my plans for the rest of the day. And I went and I hung out with Jackson and we talked about life and we got all sorts of caught up. And it was even crazier as Jackson was struggling with some things. And I was able to help because of my experience and because of the journey that I've walked. And we left that and we said, let's hang out every single week. And we have not hung out every single week <laughs> because that's adulthood. But the whole point of that is I think we have these, like, dialogues with our inner child all the time, right? Am I living up to your expectations is kind of what we say to our inner child, right? And I can't tell my inner child that I became a rock star. I can't tell my inner child that I became an astronaut. I can't tell my inner child that I became anything super, super duper special that a 10-year-old would want. But if I was simply able to say, hey, Jackson is back in our lives, I think he would have the most profound respect for me, that I was able to hold on to and value that kind of a relationship and that it came full circle. And the only reason I tell that story is because how powerful is that idea of the return? How powerful is that idea of someone went away for 25 years in my life and then all of a sudden I didn't even know it but living three blocks away from where I worked, just like right there. And I believe this is why John O'Donohue calls spirituality the art of homecoming. There are a million, billion, like, gorgeous definitions for spirituality, but I think that's my favorite one. The art of homecoming. The art of coming home. And as I was prepping for this, it reminded me of this poem uh, by Jane Hooper called Please Come Home. The poem goes like this. It says, please come home. Please come home. Find the place where your feet know where to walk and follow your own trail home. Please come home. Please come home to your body, your own vessel, your own earth. Please come home into each and every cell and fully into the space that surrounds you. Please come home. Please come home to trusting yourself and your instincts and your ways and your knowings and even the particular quirks of your personality. Please come home. Please come home. For you belong here now. You belong among us. Please inhabit your place fully so that we can learn from you and your voice and your ways and your presence. Please come home. Please come home. And when you find yourself home, please welcome us too. For we too forget that we belong and are welcome. And that we are called to fully express who we are. Please come home. Please come home, you and you and me. Please come home, please come home. Thank you, earth, for welcoming us, and thank you. Touch of eyes, ears, and skin, touch of love for welcoming us. May we wake up and remember who we truly are. Please come home, please come home, please come home. There is this spiritual idea of homecoming, and I truly believe that wherever home is is where we are at home with God. And I know that that's a big theological idea, and it makes a lot of different sense in a lot of different 
but sort of theologies and ways of thinking, but in the most basic sense, I believe that we come home to ourselves and we come home to God. And I'm going to try and get to that in a lot of different ways. One of the key things that messed me up in life, being a missionary kid, being a pastor just in this evangelical world, living and breathing it. My mom was a pastor, too. All of my uncles were pastors. It was just a big, big, like, evangelical church. Every time we did something, it was something around church, right? And so my idea of home was consistently church. I had one place in my life that didn't change. I mean, it changed in the sense that, like, it was a new church, but it was the same sort of, like, I guess, template. <laughs> you walk in, there are songs, uh, someone's going to talk for a little bit, there's a kids' ministry, there's probably a ball pit, there's probably something fun to do, right? So every time I would move, I would know that consistently this is my home, and I built my life in that home because that's where I felt comfortable. I couldn't really do great in school, but for some reason I could remember Bible facts, and so whenever a Sunday school teacher would call on me, I had the right answer, and I felt elated. I felt like, oh, I'm actually loved here. Like, people really appreciate me here. And then I started playing music, and I started playing music in the church, and my dad was really thrilled about that because he didn't have to pay for a worship leader. And, uh, and I did that for, like, a really long time, and I found this home, and I built this, this life in a church. When I was um, about 20 years old, uh, I was working at my dad's church up in the Bay Area, uh, and then I was playing in bands, uh, hoping to make it as a musician. But I kind of woke up in like my first like shallow bottom. <laughs> in recovery, we call things rock bottom, but the truth is like every person in recovery has like 20 stories of rock bottom, and the thing is you just need to like pick one. <laughs> it's like which story is actually going to be a rock bottom? This was like a shallow bottom, and I woke up in my parents' garage. And I realized I hadn't touched a drink yet. I didn't know what I didn't know what alcohol tasted like. I was a little goody two shoes Christian kid, so I had never drank in a drink in my entire life. But I woke up in a space where I was like, things don't seem great right now. When you're 20 years old and you're like creeping up and you're on your parents' garage in a couch that you put in that garage, it's not a great scene. <laughs> so I kind of looked around and I went, I don't know if this is what I want for the rest of my life. And so I Googled any college that you could get into without having good grades. That was literally the first thing that I did. I was like, what can I do to like get into school? Didn't get good grades in high school. What can I do? Uh, and I found out that you could go to music school, basically like, like a guitar audition. And I was like, well, I can do that. <laughs> and then it said it's going to be like X amount a year. And I was like, probably can't do that. <laughs> so I went up to my parents. I explained where I was. I explained what I wanted to do. And they were overly gracious. They were like, oh, my goodness, yes, we want to get you in school. <laughs> we want to get you out of our garage. So they were really, really nice about it. And they they were like, okay, great, let's start looking at stuff. I found this school in LA. I packed up my 2003 CRV with every human belonging that I had, and I drove down uh, to go to music school here in Los Angeles. And when I did that, my dad was like, so here's the deal. We can pay for music school, sort of, uh, but we cannot pay for your living situation. So whatever you want to do, you're going to have to get a job. You're going to have to go wait tables. You're going to have to find something. Uh, he's like, I do know this one guy who's starting a church in Calabasas, and he might need a worship leader. So do you want me to get in contact with him? And I was like, absolutely, yes. That would be amazing. Like, I could be a worship leader and go to school at the same time. And we get there. Uh, I audition for this pastor. Um, they like me, and so they hire me on, and because they knew I had a ministry background, uh, they didn't have a youth pastor at the time, and so in typical, like, church plant fashion, they were like, hey, would you be the youth pastor, too? And I was like, I want nothing to do with that. Like, not, no thank you. And they're like, it pays double, and I was like, I'm feeling called to youth ministry. Get me in the youth group. I need that place. And this is before we even had a service, anything like that. Um, and I guess he just saw something and it was like, I guess this guy would be good with teenagers. So, <laughs> and I was only 20. I was like two years older than some of the kids who were like going to graduate out. No education. Anyway, um, 
the first week that we roll into the church, and I'm from Northern California. Like, that's kind of, if someone asks me where I'm from, even though I've moved all over the place, I'm truly from Northern California. And in Northern California, I hate to say this, but we look down on all of you. <laughs> we, we look down on all of you as plasticky, shiny people, and how could there ever be anything soulful in Los Angeles? And I was like, it can't be like that all the way, right? Like, and I moved down, and uh, the first week of this church, um, I'm there, and the whole front row is reserved. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I've never seen a reserved row in a church. Uh, and we start playing, and the lights go down, and I can't see a whole lot. And then all of a sudden, and this is like 2010, so it's not like super apparent, but the whole Kardashian family walks in. And I'm not kidding. From like here to here, it's the entire tribe. <laughs> it's down the line. And then there was a super tall gentleman who turned out to be Lamar Odom who's just standing like right there in front of me. And I was like, I think L.A. is exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any difference. This is insane. This is so wild. What an adventure. Um, and it turns out that Kylie and Kendall were going to be in that youth group that I was going to be leading. Uh, I met them. They were very young at this point. Um, I'm their youth pastor. I used to have all these recurring dreams that they would do something crazy and that they would just put up my face. And this is the person that caused it all. And, you know, it's not too far from the truth nowadays. Anyway, um, I got to know them. And uh, they were super generous and beautiful human beings. And we needed a space to do our Wednesday night group in. And they offered their home. Um, and so for a number of years, I led a youth group in the Kardashians' backyard. And it's the most L.A. thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but this youth group was really, really beautiful in ways that I can't describe. Um, we had like 150 kids in this backyard at some points. Uh, it would dwindle to like 50, and then it would go to like 150. It's not hard to invite your friends to go over to the Kardashians' backyard. I was doing nothing of this, right? <laughs> um, but we had these really beautiful moments. Um, people were coming to faith for the first time. They were asking really tough questions about who they were and their identity and how do I rectify this and what do I do? And I caught the bug for helping people like crazy. That's all I wanted to do. I realized full stop, like music can't touch the feeling that I'm feeling right now as I'm helping another human being kind of walk through their struggles with faith, their questions of faith, their questions of identity. And if I can give my life to one thing, I want to give my life to that. And so I uh, went to seminary. Uh, I barely got through that. <laughs> uh, and I did it. And uh, once we were done, my wife and I decided we were living in Santa Monica at the time. And the church was all the way in Agora Hills. So we were driving really far. And we just decided what would it look like to start a church in our neighborhood with the friends that we had. And we had this really beautiful group of friends, and we had this really cool opportunity, and I sat them all down in my living room one night, and it was like 25 of us packed in this tiny one bedroom in Santa Monica, and I was like, what would it mean if we started a community here? Would anybody show up? And unanimously, everyone was like, we'd love to do that. Like, let's do it. And so we did it, and we embarked on this insane journey of starting a church on the west side of Los Angeles where nobody wants to live for more than a year. <laughs> um, but we did it. And that church began to grow, and at the same time, this is around like 2015, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, who I'd gotten to know pretty well uh, doing that youth group, uh, transitioned. And so we got all sorts of questions because we had started by this little group that was funded pretty much by Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists are sneaky. You don't know you're in a Southern Baptist church unless you start asking real questions. <laughs> like, they will not let you know that until you reach like the end of the line and you're going to volunteer. And they're like, by the way, here are all the bylaws <laughs> and everything you need to know about the church. Um, and so we got all these questions and we started, I started getting like emails and texts and calls. Um, and I wrote what I thought was going to be just a Facebook post to just stop the noise. 
I was like, I'm tired of answering all these emails as a human being with a real purpose in life, and people are just treating it like it's just some news story. Uh, so I wrote something, and all it was was the story of how I got to know that family, leading that youth group, stories of Caitlin fishing out cupcakes out of the pool filter after kids had thrown it in, stuff like that. And I put the phone down uh, after I posted that, and I'll never forget, I put it down, and it didn't stop buzzing for like three days. I put it down, and instantly it was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is fun at first, right? Like, I'm getting a lot of attention. This is really cool. And then it got a little bit scary because those were coming through, and there was a lot of very conservative people, very angry people uh, who didn't want to see this go much farther. But the problem was it was already out in the world. So that Facebook post made it to the Huffington Post, made it to the Washington Post. Basically, by the end of it, uh, the Washington Post people told me um, that about 3.3 million people read it uh, by the end of its sort of cycle. It's still out there if you want to read it. It's called, I Went to Church with Bruce Jenner. Here's what Caitlin taught me about Jesus. It was a pretty snazzy title. Um, and it went very far. Um, and in it going very far, I thought this was going to be a really cool thing for this church community that we had started. I thought maybe this will be the juice that will get us going. It will be free advertising, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was. It was really wild. We had people showing up from all walks of life uh, to go to this church, and it was really, really beautiful. Uh, the problem was the Southern Baptists uh, were lurking uh, <laughs> back behind several reams because I don't know what it is, but like after everything fizzled out, no one was talking about this article, no one was sharing it anymore. It was probably months and months away. Uh, I got a call from one of those leaders, and they said, we need to sit down with you. And I said, okay, well, sounds good. What are we meeting about? <laughs> and basically, without saying it, they're like, you're impending doom. <laughs> so I got to the meeting, and I sat down, and there were 13 chairs, and each chair was filled with a church leader of note here in Los Angeles. I will not list those churches, but just if there's a church over 500 people, it's one of them. <laughs> so they were there, and they all sat there, and uh, turn by turn, uh, they took turns just basically telling me why I was wrong. Um, the words they used were, what you wrote was incomplete. What you wrote about this freedom for this person, this freedom who has a heart and a spirit and a soul, is incomplete. And if you could just write at the end that this is sin, then we'll be okay. Uh, and they gave me 30 days um, to figure out what I was going to do. I told them right before I walked out of the room that there was no way that I was going to write a retraction to that. And I was very sorry, uh, but there was just no way that was happening. And at the end of the 30 days... Uh, I submitted another document that just basically said the same thing. Like, I don't, I'm not going to do that. Uh, they pulled all funding um, overnight. And not only that, our church went from, like, this big thriving thing to maybe, like, 45 true people at the end of the day. It just, like, flipped, right? Um, and the other thing that had been humming on the sideline, which is a huge part of the story and which is where we're going to get to, is that I've been drinking the whole time. Uh, as a musician, uh, you, you, you drink. <laughs> uh, and, and I've been playing in bands, and I've been working in studios. And uh, in one particular studio that I worked at when I worked here in Los Angeles, uh, there'd be a guy with a clipboard who would come around in the morning, and he would come to you, and he would say, what are you smoking? What are you drinking? And I had no idea what I was doing. I was like 20, 21. I had just started drinking. And I, uh, I, sorry, Corey's going like this in the back. So there it is. I just started drinking. 
Um, and, uh, and I would just ask for a bottle of Crown. Like, what a light move in the middle of the day. Uh, and they would bring a bottle of Crown, and I would start drinking that, and I would pour it in, and I would drink the whole drink, and then I would go to happy hours afterwards, and then we would go to bars afterwards, and then we would start the whole thing over. And that pattern of life, I took that drinking because it helped numb all of the pain, anxiety, and fear that I was dealing with in my life. And I took that over to my church world because it stopped the pain, the fear, and the anxiety in that life as well. It was like a mute button that I could successfully click every single day, and I didn't have to worry about what was going on. Except the problem was it was really, really, really catching up to me. Uh, I became what's called physically dependent upon alcohol. Towards the end, I was drinking a Costco-sized bottle of vodka a day. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was a shell of a human being. But the nice thing about being a pastor in sort of a starty-up situation is you only have to show up one day for work, <laughs> Sunday. So I would drink all week long until Friday, and then I would take a break on Saturday, and then I would come in on Sunday morning. And that lasted for so long, and then I couldn't take a break on Saturday, and so I kept drinking, and I walked in on Sunday. And one particular Sunday morning, I had drinking far, far too much from the night before, and then also just from, like, the day into it. We, our church met in a bar because I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so our church was in a bar, and, and there was alcohol there, and when I would walk in in the morning, I would pour two shots of whatever was there and drink a Pabst Blue Ribbon just so that my hands would stop shaking and I would stop sweating so that I could preach. And most of that was all because I was hiding all of these intense feelings of resentment for all 13 of those pastors who had sat me down. I was hiding all of this resentment for all of these quote-unquote Christians who were going to churches that were actively hurting people. I was nothing but angry. I was just mad, and I was drinking myself into oblivion to solve that madness. Ronald Loheiser has this incredible quote about spirituality, and he says, all of us are born with a madness inside of us, and what you do with that madness is your spirituality. And what I was doing with my madness was not pointing that towards God or anything useful. I was just pointing it towards oblivion. I was just pointing it towards, I just want all of this to stop. Jesus has this line where he says, if you bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will save you. And if you do not bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will destroy you. And that is truly what I did. I kept it all inside, and it kept eating me alive. And fast forward to that one faithful Sunday where I arrived, and I'd had too much, and it was way too apparent, and I preached my best, I guess, like one eye open. And um, it's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> Jamie's in recovery, too. Uh, with one eye open, and I remember seeing the back row stand up and walk out of the room. And I remember seeing the next row stand up and walk out of the room. And uh, by the end of that service, there were probably about 10 people in the room, and five of those were my, like, direct family. So they had nowhere to go. Uh, they were just all scowling at me, looking like, what are you going to do now, buddy? And I left that place and I went to my garage and I opened up my garage and I opened up that huge bottle of Tito's and I started to take a huge gulp of it knowing my life was essentially over as I had known it. And all of a sudden, the head of my board pulls up in his pickup truck right in front of my garage as I'm mid-handle in. <laughs> and he walks out of the door and he says, what do we need to do to help? And I broke down crying and I said, I have no idea. I just know this is completely out of control. I don't know what to do about it. I can't stop. I feel like I'm going to die every time I try to stop. And he just put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, get in the truck. We're going to go to your parents' house. We're going to figure this out. And we went in the truck. And we went 
to my parents' house, and we began to figure this out. We got me into treatment, all of that. The church went away. I bounced around in treatment for four years. I went to treatment center to treatment center to sober living to sober living, and I kept relapsing every time. And the reason was, and nobody could understand this as deep as someone who's actually grown up in the evangelical church, so hopefully some of you will understand this. They couldn't get why the God thing was so big for me. They couldn't understand why that peace mattered so much. And I kept telling them, I don't know why this keeps happening, but I know why. It's because I don't have a spiritual home. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, just, just get a higher power. Like, do your thing. Let it be the doorknob or the ocean or something like that and move forward. And for me, I just couldn't do that. I was like, I, I need something tangible. I need my home, my spiritual home that I was missing for so long. And I remember one night, I was drinking myself into oblivion in my apartment. This is my real bottom, not the fun bottom, but this is what I call my country music bottom. The, the girl is gone, the dog is gone, the apartment is gone, everything is gone. <laughs> I'm in my apartment and it, it looks like the Grinch had just stolen everything for Christmas. There are like lines on the, um, on the ceiling of where paintings used to be. Uh, and I was measuring my balcony outside to see if the distance from the top of the balcony to the bottom of the balcony would take my life. And before I stepped on that balcony, I heard this really small voice inside of me that said, come home, come home. And just like Elijah with that huge, big, like I want the big dramatic thing, I want the balcony, I want the fireworks, I want the ocean, I want everything. And this still quiet, inconvenient voice said, please come home. And something came over me and I grabbed my phone from my pocket and I called my friend Robbie who ran the sober living that I was living in and had been kicked out of. <laughs> and I said, Robbie, I don't know what to do. And he said, let's talk. And I took a six pack of beer from my balcony into my 2002 Jetta and sat out, car wasn't on, no DUI here, uh, sat out in the car where I thought I was the safest because I was nowhere near the balcony and I cracked those beers and with every beer, Robbie would just give me grace. I finally let him into the whole story. I let him into every crevice of everything that was going on. I held nothing back. And it was the first time that I was actually truly vulnerable. And Robbie, so graciously, literally said out loud the words that I heard approaching that balcony. And he just told me, Josh, come home. Come home. Come back to the sober living. And I came home. And Robbie was a genius because his dad was a square, uh, four square pastor in the evangelical world, a really big one at that time. And he knew that journey. His journey was much different. He played in like Ozfest bands. He's covered in tattoos in his face. <laughs> but he's like, I think I know what's going on with this little Christian boy in my home. And he got me linked with two spiritual directors. Um, one was a guy named Blitch and, and one is uh, Richard who's standing right there. Uh, saved my life. And um, sitting, not standing, sorry. You're all looking behind him. He's right there. <laughs> I was like, where is he? He runs. Um, and these people began to instill that feeling of home in me again. They were gracious enough to take all my anger, all my questions about God and this God who had screwed me over and this God who didn't, I didn't, I believed in this God. I truly believe this God did not believe in me. And that spaciousness gave way to the life that I now have. And I can't say a lot, uh, but just like going back to that story of Jackson and being able to tell my little 10-year-old self that as long as Jackson's in this life, like, we're good, buddy. 
I really think now, like, if I could tell that wounded pastor in that garage opening that vodka bottle that he would be standing right here, that is crazy. That's the spaciousness that God truly provides. Nowadays in my life and in my walk with God, I don't so much believe in Jesus, but I believe Jesus. I believe what Jesus has to say when he says things like, I want you to have life and life abundantly. I want you to have joy and joy abundantly. And yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> I was like, um, so with that, you're going to get back into your groups and you're going to go over this following question. The question is, the, uh, how can you practice returning? <laughs>